Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing kenneth andrade's approach to stock picking can only be described as super rational even more interesting than that is how he constructs his portfolio in a rather unique episode we spend a considerable amount of time discussing this we also talk how to identify a sector to bet on and position sizing an underrated yet very important determinant of overall returns listen in kenneth hi uh, welcome to uh, the equity master investor hour thanks rahul thanks for inviting me i think we've done this before a couple of years ago a few years ago i think and uh, you know it was fascinating very thought provoking and i'm looking forward to today's discussion uh, even yes. more so even more so because i think talking to you every time whenever i talk to you and the other day when i spoke to you over the phone uh, you bring in a perspective which is very thought provoking and also very seems just so much right to you know think on those lines so i'm going to probe a little bit on that also what we discussed the other day and uh, talk about that but to begin with i want to rewind back uh, all the way back and ask you to share a little bit about yourself mm-hmm. uh, where where were you born and brought up what kind of education you had uh, you know the family background you know what was your household like i'm just trying to uh, uh, put in a frame of what was the background to you know kenneth becoming the brilliant and more uh, very popular fund manager that he's become ah that's a loaded question that's uh, uh, okay uh, i think my real career in equity investing started off in 2002 Okay. Uh, before that, I was a hobbyist investor. Hobbyist. Mm-hmm. Hobbyist investor, right? Mm-hmm. I also did a little bit of what you say, um, financial reporting at the beginning of the entire career. Okay. And uh, and that's where uh, I gain. I should I say gain the breadth of the entire market. Yes, I mean, there were enough companies between in the nineties that never did well. There were few that did well at that point in time, and I think that was the that was the foundation of of it all. Uh, I came from a very uh, fairly ordinary uh, uh, middle class background. Uh, my parent, my my dad was uh, uh, was in service. My mom's a housemaker. Had a brother and a sister. Um, very nondescript, staying in Mumbai suburbs for the. For for the longest time I can remember, I'm actually still in Mumbai suburbs. Okay, uh, so 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 that was the background. The interest in equity started because Dad used to uh, invest in IPOs, and IPOs were a big thing. Big thing yeah. One thing led to the other. I I uh, I started working as an accountant in two, 1987, so could understand balance sheets. I I was pretty much uh, uh, pretty much keyed on to making sure that all trial balances that passed me. Got balanced to the last decimal point, um, so 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 that was a little bit of everything that I did, uh, and uh, because Dad invested in a lot of uh, 
IPOs. Uh, that transition helped me uh, uh, get a job in financial in in financial journalism. It happened in capital markets in 1990. Uh, that was the magazine, yeah. uh, and it, and life moved on from there. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you you said '87 is when you started, you know, looking at balance sheets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing the uh, crossing the eyes and uh, crossing the T's and dotting the eyes, etc. And as an accountant, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned your father was investing in IPOs. Was it the mid '90s IPO boom, or was it pre? Earlier, it was the mid '80s. Oh, mid '80s. Now that's something I am not familiar with a lot. Uh, so, don't take me back there <laughs> so but do you recollect any IPOs that anything that comes to your mind what 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 you guys did and did anything play out well did not play out well I mean one thing that I learned from that exercise is the mortality rate and whatever you hold is extremely high mm. <laughs> okay uh, while we talk about long term investing very few companies come through, through through that phase in, in through that phase in time. So there are very, very few companies that I can remember from the 80s and most of them are MNCs or extremely large groups. Yeah. Uh, and, and if I just applied that to it all, I mean, you have to have a uh, have, have an investment thought process that, that either migrates to companies getting larger, okay, mm-hmm. or getting larger and getting higher. Or make sure that you don't get caught with the bottom end of spectrum of companies. I mean, valuations can be a big trap. Relative valuations can be a big trap because there's always a company which is trading cheaper than these than than, than another one. Yeah. Uh, but that's not necessarily a good good stock. Yeah, they're cheap for a reason. They could be cheap for a reason, and that's what you have to guard against. So the 80s and the 90s, we saw two big IPO booms, and I know, and I've seen a lot of businesses out there that came through. Uh, and they were collecting in today's terms paltry sums of money, uh, but none, none of them really survived, and none of them really, really became dominant. I remember the mid '90s IPO boom. Oh, that was crazy! And you know, if I recollect well, those days, uh, the 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 private radios had started, right? The private channels. So you know, I was in college, and you know, the radio would be on, and you would get all these ads. If I, I, I think I vaguely recollect SR Oil IPO. I don't know what all IPOs were coming those days. And, and you're right. I think a lot of them uh, destroyed uh, shareholder value. Mm. Uh, a, a lot of it. That was venture capital investing when venture capital <laughs> investing wasn't there. That was venture capital investing for retail. For retail. Yeah. 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 So uh, tell me, where were you uh, during the Harshad Mehta period? Were you investing? Were you out of the market? Were you just observing? Oh yes, I was investing. I was losing money for sure. Yeah. Hmm. So so take us through the nineties because nineties is a very peculiar period, right? Hmm. We had the Harshad Mehta boom. We had a sell-off. Then we had the FII boom ninety-four. Uh, we had the IPO boom, and then towards the end of the decade, we had the massive TMT rally, and all of course ended with big disasters. Harshad Mehta, the FII sell-off, uh, the hmm. Uh, the IPO boom was, of course, which turned out to be a bust, and the TMT. So tell mm-hmm. me, what what were you doing in that? Because that seems to have laid a foundation to go into journalism. Mm-hmm. So did any of that contribute to it and your life experiences in that period? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so unlike what we saw from 2000 to 2020 or 2022, in, in a better part of the cycle, the market was always going up. Of course, you had those deep falls that come through. 
the nineties markets very rarely went up, and everything you had never went up. <laughs> and that was my experience in the nineties. So, so the FIA boom was very narrow. It was very big capish, so small capish companies that were not on the radar that actually did well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Harshad Mehta uh, rally that was there, I mean, that was a fallout right now of of something called the replacement cost theory at that point in time, which was effectively the the remnants of the junk bond boom in the US, right? Mm-hmm. Called the junk bond scandal, junk bond boom, and that that was the remnant of that. That structure that played out, uh, and 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 then it was replaced by the first level leg of FI investing in the country, and and uh, and should I say the uh, institutionalization of equity research as a career. Hmm. Yep. Okay, and that was a very peculiar period of time because there were these large, uh, big wallet foreign institutional uh, brokerage firms coming in and. And some of the salaries at that point in time were unbelievable, but they existed, um, and that was the first, that was the foundation of all of that happening at that point in time. Uh, and very quickly towards the end of the decade, a lot of them started uh, uh, feeling the heat of uh, it's not a big enough market. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that was also the foundation of the investment banks that come through. Okay, the big in the big IPOs, the big steel IPOs. Uh, Mm-hmm. It all came through that that period of time, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what helped us through uh, the the nineties. Never made money. Actually, I I can't remember a single year where I walked away with uh, a positive uh, a positive. Uh, I mean, there must have been a, a year or two where where portfolios were positive, but I can't remember that very distinctly. It wasn't very large. Yeah. But you were an accountant. You were paying your bills via uh, accounting profession, and this was what you were doing on the side. Yeah, actually, I had already shifted over to uh, mainstream equity research and and some okay. elementary fund management. Accounting was more like eighty seven to ninety one, ninety two. Okay. So you got into the market when it was hot. <laughs> so yeah. 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 So I I I also distinctly remember that uh, two industries, one was textiles and second was uh, steel uh, metals steel. They accounted for a very significant part of the market capitalization. That's right. And very quickly to towards ninety nine two thousand, they all disappeared. Yeah, yeah. So those days, if I remember, you know, I I, I did go to the stock exchange, but I think it was not until ninety four, mm-hmm. right? And uh, even then, the old, you know. Even though I think the the open uh, that uh, open trading was ending that time, but you still had the old jobbers, you know, who would wear the traditional Indian dhoti and you know those clothes and a topi, and they would come, and they would always talk of the price of Tata Steel and Century as benchmarks, right? Yes. yes, yes. And of course, there was Reliance as well. But I, I remember Tata Steel and Century very clearly, which is of course metals and textiles. uh so uh during this phase where you did not uh, you know did not have a big year in that sense do you remember any particular stock that was like a big winner or a big loser for you and no, uh, no? i it, it, it was a decade that i uh, uh, that nothing really came to mind it was it was just collection of a lot of information at that point in time for me as it Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your ten yeah, thousand hours, your ten thousand hours in the field of research and uh, learning. 
Yes. Yeah, there was a lot of legwork. There was no internet. There was physical copies, and that also was not right. really available. You had to you had to sit at the Bombay Stock Exchange to get the results out. Otherwise, you were the last person to know about the results. So it was a very different. It was a def- very different world, and there was an enormous amount of information arbitrage also. Yeah, yeah. You could literally. Yeah, you're right. There's amazing. Uh, at some point in time, of course, you moved into journalism. uh what was the thinking behind that hmm. so the um, so so around the career was uh, 1987 i was in college i did a lot of accounting 1991 i moved to capital market mm-hmm. 1992 to 1993 uh, i spent a lot of time uh, freelancing in journalism okay. 1993 i moved to equity research um, did a little bit fund management right up to 2000 2000 to 2002 okay that is almost a decade of equity research very little fund management and 2002 uh, i joined uh, the kotak asset management company uh, 2000 uh, 2005 i joined uh, standard chartered asset management company it got acquired by idfc idfc yeah and now you are talking to your truly entrepreneur <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah sorry i i mixed up my years so uh, you you of course entered a uh, uh, fund management now tell me what i'm very keen to understand is when you went into fund management i think uh, those days i was involved in a initiative which was researching mutual funds right mm-hmm. and we uh, zeroed in on your performance and your stock picking when you were at stand chart and mm-hmm. it, then it became idfc and i'm not sure whether i met you those days mid 2000s or my colleagues met you you know i, I just slips my mind but uh, how was that how was the transition i don't think most people understand how do you graduate from someone who's researching stocks to mm. becoming a fund management talk to us about uh, what it takes to make that shift both from a skill perspective and also a mindset perspective mm. so so it's a it's it's a self learning process at least for me it was a self learning process and i think the big big shift i, I was very lucky uh the first fund i got to manage was a, a fund called an mnc fund okay right now the kotak mnc fund right, right. yeah okay yeah. Uh-huh. kotak mnc fund and and not too many people knew but if i looked at my universe in those days in 2002 3 the universe was 51 companies wow okay <laughs> Okay, and and if you had to, uh, and today if I had to identify my style of investing, is that you put into a box, okay, and you got to optimize it, so you're not given a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I say I was very fortunate to be in that, out of fifty-one companies I was running, I mean we were having about fifteen companies, so it came very easily to me how, how to size a position. Uh-huh. Okay, and. And when I say it came very easily, is that you had no choice. Okay. Mm-hmm. And which is why till date I just I I I I don't see the need to have more than thirty companies on my portfolio. I prefer to have them at twenty. And and that's diversification as far as I'm concerned. So so today even if it's a billion dollar product or a billion or hopefully a two billion dollar product someday, I would still like like to. uh i'd like to optimize that box out there so 20 companies 20 businesses so uh, so so going backwards and coming forward how did i make a transition i guess i was one of the fortunate few to get a product which was uh, uh which not too many people uh, uh 
get to optimize. But but that helps you think in terms of sectors. It helps you think in terms of uh, of, of picking uh, uh, picking businesses which are uh, picking so. So, so on a scale of ten, you might like ten companies, but you're pushed to push to push to select a few, selecting companies. just that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's how that transition happened. So, moving from equity research to funds management, I don't think I I I, I struggled too much, uh, and also because it's the character of the uh, character of the product that was given to me to, to manage. So, I'm very comfortable. Holding ten percent of my portfolio in one particular. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned the word position uh, sizing, yeah. and uh, so uh, this is one thing I think it's come up in the investor hour earlier as well, in our other discussions. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people underestimate the importance of position sizing. Mm. Uh, you may get a great stock, but if you don't allocate well, you got a problem. You may get a pathetic stock, and you may allocate a lot. Uh, so, like we tend to uh, say in our writings at Equity Master as well, that at a much larger level, in the long term, asset allocation will probably have a disproportionate impact on your overall wealth. Similarly, in a portfolio, position sizing is very important. Yes. yes. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about position sizing. Uh, how do you? How should one go? How do you go about it? Are there any learnings? And also, when you say with conviction that even if you had a billion or a two billion dollar fund. And you could have ten percent in a stock. Where does that conviction come from? Hmm. So convictions are never built overnight, right? Uh, and and I think the simplest way now we start off is like goi will wait. You got a portfolio to manage. You got twenty companies. Uh, I I don't put up. I don't put my conviction on one particular company. Says no, this is the thing that's going to. Okay. okay so twenty companies, four and a half percent. You got your. Hundred percent invested. Right year three after putting that together, the the differential between the top ten and the bottom ten starts showing up. And when some of those companies go up to over ten percent of the portfolio, it 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 pushes you to. I mean, then sure. it pushes you to think whether I should take money off the table or I'm happy to hold that one. And I think that's where conviction starts playing out. So the first is uh, the the first leg of putting a put, putting our portfolio together, putting a portfolio together, is pick up twenty companies with almost the same characteristics, Correct. financial characteristics, valuation characteristics, and put it together like a basket. You have a basket of basket both, but then you let your winners run, and that's what they become larger portion of your portfolio. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But when putting it together, like I mean, the prerequisite of all of this is, and, and this is also comes to something called an investment style. The prerequisite is to the there shouldn't be a style drift in the way you pick stocks. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. there are certain parameters that you like. You like you like to you like to fit a stock with valuations. If you like to fit a stock with growth, you pick your choice and pick your investment style. But make sure that all those twenty companies that you build. Uh, represent the same style that you bought the first company with. Got it. Okay. Uh, now, why do you do something like that? So, so I've been at it for the last twenty years, probably more, in terms of uh, putting portfolios together. And to a very large extent, there's subconsciously you know what has worked for you, and subconsciously you know what has not worked for you. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and I can quantify that also. So that subconsciousness, you can quantify how it comes into numbers. So the reason why you put that all together, 20 companies, the same parameters, different industries. Okay. Okay, because every industry has got a different cycle and then your portfolio starts emerging. Okay, some industries struggle and mm -hmm. some industries actually do well. Okay. But that 4.5% uh, positioning that you do starts increasing to 10% and some of those ones, some of the companies that's, that, are, that belong to industries that are struggling uh, continue to be where they are. So they're completely outshadowed by the others. And that's where, and that's where we come. That, that's how uh, uh, I've been able, and that's how experience has brought my portfolio to where it is. So your position sizing uh, is effectively a result and not a starting point. It's not a starting point. That's a very, very interesting approach. Uh, uh, you know, the other day uh, for our podcast, uh, we were speaking to Alok Jain, who's a momentum stock picker. And he does the same thing. He said, I just pick a basket. You know, you, uh, But he's, of course, looking at it from a different parameter as against yours. He's very clear. I look at basket. I don't worry about individuals to begin with. I have a basket. Yes. And I expect the basket overall to do well. Perfect. And, you know, we're talking again one week later and we're talking about the same thing. Yes. Uh, I have to push probability of being right. I, I am not getting into the game of being certainly right. Interesting. Interesting. Because so uh, the point you're trying to make is if at the beginning you're picking the stock as well as you're deciding the allocation, hmm. you're, you're making more than one bet at the same time and that doesn't work in favor of your pro probabilities, I guess. Yes. It lowers your probability of success. Yes, 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 yes. That's, a, that's something that, uh, you know, one can learn from, uh, uh, as, you know, uh, our viewers can learn from. And, and then uh, automatically over time, you would have a portfolio with weightages which reflect, uh, you know, what it should be. The winners yeah. having more of your portfolio and the losers having, not the losers, the relatively underperformers having lower things. Lower, yes, lower but then that, that also brings me to the second step of portfolio. Portfolio Three years or four years later, I mean, there are some that exit the portfolio. That's right. Yeah. Okay. But it's more critical on how do you scale up your bottom end of the portfolio. So there's one company, um, so, so, so if there's a business that consistently does well, mm -hmm. okay, but profit pool in the industry is not increasing. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, but it dominates the profitability of the industry. It's a the problem is not of the company, the problem is of the industry. So no matter yeah. how well it does, it'll always be hit by the upper upper bar. Yes, yes. Yeah. but every industry is cyclical in nature. So you have to continue to resize that part of the portfolio, or that part, that company back. Interesting. Okay, so never because what what are we uh, uh, what do we tend to do? We tend to buy the same parameter irrespective of the industry. Same parameter. And the, if that parameter continues to remain as efficient as it was with the day we bought it, on a small allocation, I'll, re I'll reset that allocation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay, we need, to, we need to talk a little bit more about this because it's a little technical, but the, uh, I, I think we should talk about it because this is something people can imbibe and, uh, you know, kind of uh, learn from. So, uh, when you are talking of dealing with the bottom part of your portfolio, let's say four years down the line, it reminds me of two things. And tell me whether I'm right or wrong. The first thing it reminds me of Jack Welch. 
and uh, in the context that if you want the company to do well, you deal with the bottom part of your uh, you know uh, uh, employees, and if you just keep working at that, over time we'll just have a better employee pool, and the company will do better. So you're so, trying to deal with that, right? Uh, the other thing it reminds me is that you don't want to lose money, so you get rid of the stocks which have a which haven't delivered and have a potential. I guess you know it goes by the theory of if something is not working, it's not working for a reason, and maybe yeah. you may you you know maybe you don't know something the market knows. So you're willing to exit those. So you're basically left with only the winners over time. And naturally, there's momentum in your favor to succeed because you got winners in your portfolio. Yeah, broadly on those lines? Broadly on those lines. But on the exits, uh, I'm willing to nurse my, nurse my losers also as long as, um, um, yeah. as long as I have a reasonable insight on what's going wrong. Yeah. And that's where your experience counts. Uh, for, a, for a layman, it can end up being a bias, right? Or worse, ego. Mm -hmm. But in your case, it's your decades of experience which can tell you, you know what, I can wait it out because I think the market will take note. Yes, yes, yes. I think uh, once, um, and, and that's been my experience, whether I was with Standard Chartered uh, or with uh, Old Bridge, it takes a good three, four years for your portfolio to settle down, or maybe five years for your portfolio. And then you're, then you're on the journey. How do you deal with your winners? Do you just keep letting them run or at some point in time you, you take money off the table? No, we take money off the table. I have to reallocate it to some of my some of the ones that are not performing. So here's the thing, right? If you read uh, the literature which most of our viewers read, right, about Buffett, about anyone, they say buy and hold, buy and hold, buy and hold, right? Mm -hmm. And But if I look at what Buffett is doing, I can see he sells as well. Of course. Right? No. But, uh, and I if I look at myself, we all... Again, it's a bias. Mm -hmm. You own a stock. And I, I don't think many people actually ever book a profit. They want to just hold on to it. And, uh, you know, just as the reason they don't want to sell, exit a loss making position, because it, it's painful to book a loss. But uh, I, is that what differentiates a fund manager or a professional money manager from a hobbyist, if you will, where biases take hold? And that's what sort of, uh, you know, uh, puts pressure on our overall performance over time. So, so I, 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 um, my ex boss taught me this: is that your enemy that you, I mean, your cost of holding your company is not the price you bought it; it's yesterday's closing price. Mm. You got to decide on yesterday's closing price or last week's closing price. If you're not watching prices every day, whether the rationale of holding that business still holds true. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of uh, investors who keep uh, who keep asking me, okay, because I had this legacy of buying uh, buying a lot of these consumer names in two thousand and eight to two thousand and thirteen. They did very well, right? Uh, and why are they not represented in my portfolio at this point in time? Uh, so so I just go back and I just take one step back and I say. Uh, in a lot of these cases, in a lot of these cases, in 2008 to 2013, I bought business companies and businesses where the valuation framework was 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 in my favor. Now, what was the valuation framework? Um, their earnings yield, okay, was was significantly higher 
then um, um, then your tenured chief. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, in today's context, for me to justify that argument, though they are great companies, okay, it's very very difficult. The reason why I'll buy it today has to be completely different, and that's a style bias if I do it today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so, so that's a style. That's a style bias. Okay, that's a style. Drift. So. So that's essentially why uh, we I continue to uh, um, I I continue to look at just one parameter of financial numbers ratios etc. and create companies which are like uh, of very similar characteristics within the portfolio. Yeah. Okay. So just for the viewers, earnings yield is nothing but earnings divided by price expressed as a percentage. Cost of money is what is given. So if a company uh, uh, is making a profit of 100 rupees on a share price of 1000. So it's basically giving you a return of 10%. It may not come to you because the company may be reinvesting the money, but 10% vis-a-vis if the cost of government money is 5%, 6%, 7%, so you know you are better off or worse off. Broadly speaking, that's, that's what Kenneth is referring to. Uh, I want to um, step back a little bit, Kenneth. When you said you try and select 20, 30 companies across industries, but you're looking for certain commonalities. Mm -hmm. uh, what, uh, at the risk of oversimplification, uh, which is that one metric that you rate the highest when selecting companies uh, for your portfolio across uh, sectors? Uh, it's got to be the largest in its industry and, and have the best financial metrics in its industry. So when you say largest, given other things are the same, you're already looking for a winner. Yes. Uh, okay. And best financials could vary, I guess, I assume, right? Uh, yes. Uh, what do you mean by, uh, you know, some companies, whether they have debt, don't have debt, profitability, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, so tell me something. When you say you're betting on winners to begin with, uh, you, you said largest, you said best. Uh, where does valuations play a role? Okay. Uh, and the reason I ask this is because incidentally, these days I'm reading a book, which uh, <laughs> at times makes a case that don't get too hung up on valuations mm -hmm. because good companies are expensive for a reason and they can mm -hmm. say expensive for a very long time. And we've seen that in India in the case of the MNCs, which you, uh, which you, which you've really done uh, studied over the years. Mm -hmm. so, so talk to us about that a bit, please. Mm -hmm. So, so let me get, uh, uh, so, so the preconceived notion is a, a good company, a great company, a largest company in a particular industry always comes expensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good what point. happens if that industry is not making money? Okay. Fair okay. point. They'll be the worst hit if the industry is doing well, uh, bad. Probably. Okay, so my biggest yeah. learning experience is from one of the one of the worst commodities that anyone can can put up an industry around with sugar. Okay. Right. Uh, I think it was 1999. Uh, the entire industry made a loss, and Banram uh, Chini came uh, with a profit of 30 crores. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Um, I think the market cap was somewhere around. Uh, 150 crores, 160 crores. Today, the same market capitalization would be northwards of about eight, seven, eight thousand, six thousand, six, seven, eight thousand crores. And in every cycle, there was one new uh, uh, new company in the sugar industry that hit a ten thousand crores 
market cap. The first cycle was Bajaj Hindustan. The second cycle was Sri Lanka Sugars. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for all of us who are financial analysts, we all we all always tend to believe that return on capital employed or return on equity is 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 a measure of capital efficiency. So my journey is between uh, uh, so our investment journey is between a seven eight percent return on capital employed to a thirty percent return on capital employed. Uh, why does a good company trade cheap? A good company changes because the industry profitability is collapsed. Mm-hmm. Okay, which takes me to back to the point: it's become a business which is which is the largest in its category, where he's having the lowest margins in this business, irrespective of where the valuation stands. When the cycle changes, you're back to fifteen, sixteen percent margin, and you know there'll be a big beneficiary when the cycle turns around. That's so the that's point. So we don't wait for uh, 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 for return on for capital efficiencies to show up before we step into the business. We like to be large shareholders of a category wherein uh, you've got very depressed valuations, but but a very valuable asset base. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. You go back to uh, a very efficient business right through the last twenty years, which is for modern fertilizers, right? Every down cycle, he got higher market share. End of story. Okay. Okay. You go back to Chambal fertilizer. I mean, this is a fertilizer business. It's not. And why I talk about fertilizer business? There's no investment in the business because private sector is shunted. Mm-hmm. You are operating in one of the most inefficient industries ever, regulated and inefficient. And look at the money that they've created. And this is not money in terms of wealth to the investor. I and mean, that's also happened in the course of time, but in, the, in terms of just sheer cash flow and profitability of that business, and this is a government-facing business. Right? So uh, okay, so uh, let's try and uh, just revisit the steps. So so I am understanding this. Uh, large companies, uh, they are getting if the overall industry profitability is low. The large companies in that, of course, have all the numbers supplied, but but you're trying to get into them at a stage, at that stage, because when the profitability turns, they will probably be among the better, bigger beneficiaries. Okay. Right. So, in typically, uh, a lot of people say we are bottom-up investors. We only focus on the company and how well it does. You seem to have like a a little bit of a top-down approach. You're looking for sectors going through cycles. And within that, you're trying to find the right company. Is that uh, kind of uh, sort of differentiates your style from some of the very typical bottom-up uh, stock pickers? I think subconsciously, everyone's looking at some the similar metric. You always start with the company. You always start with the company. You always start with the company, and 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 obviously, a company, uh, a large company, not doing well. Every single investor worth his salt is always visiting the company, knowing that it, it, the time will come. It's the time of entry, which is which is fairly critical. I do it on the downside. Someone waits for it to turn around before they step. That's that's where it is. Got it. And give us so you you've obviously given us a couple of examples. Uh, you've given us uh, in fertilizers. You've spoken about uh, sugar. Uh, so uh, we are of course going to stay away from stock recommendations and all. That's not a beat at the investor hour. But talk to us about industries. Uh, talk about, if you can talk about one industry today, uh, where you are seeing 
uh, suppressed profitability and which over the next few years uh, could see such a trend play out. Mm-hmm. Just to give a sense in the context of the times we are in. Real estate. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so let's take that as a case. Mm-hmm. So real estate has been through what, seven, eight years of a bear market in terms of the real property cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a problem there. So the industry profitability is suppressed. Uh, you have companies over there with long track records. So you're looking for stocks in that space, which are large, which have, of course, suppressed numbers. And then you're saying you can get in. And as the cycle turns, you can ride it. And if the company does better, becomes more efficient, you ride it even more. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of story. Okay, Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to uh, 2008, everyone wanted to do real estate, right? DLF that's correct. Almost wow. the largest stock. You know, 2000, from DLF hasn't revisited its all-time highs. I don't think it's going to revisit in a long time, right? Wasn't it like a 90, 90% fall from the peak? Right? Some, some... Shoba is trading still around its IPO price in 2007. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. And all the other guys around that space, I mean, you name all those numbers I put there, they're all decimated. They're all gone. Wow. So, uh, so different industries have different cycles, right? So at any point in time, so, uh, so when you're constructing your portfolio, you're tracking all these trends and, you know, whenever you see the trend, you make switches and sort of get them into your portfolio, right? That's all. Yes, it's not like, I don't, I wouldn't say it's as simplistic as this. So, um, um, yeah, but yeah, we are alive to a lot of things happening around us. More importantly is where uh, the, the quality of balance sheet of a lot of companies are improving. Uh, quality of a balance sheet improves. There's low growth in the industry. Those things are those things we love. Yeah. So, so to put it financially, uh, uh, we all calculate return on equity or return on capital employed. In this case, return on capital employed. Mm-hmm. So uh, return on capital employed has got two variables, the numerator and the denominator. Mm-hmm. Okay, capital employed and the top line is BVIT. Yeah. Um, a lot of investors tend to project the numerator. Okay. But the efficiency is in the denominator. So if you're a bottom-up investor, you have to consistently keep looking at how fast I'm shrinking my numerator for the same how fast I'm shrinking my denominator, denominator. for the same numerator. That'll have a big impact on the returns. Yes. More so, yeah. so we are not macro investors. Uh, my simple single metric is uh, how much can a management squeeze its uh, its denominator, right? In a environment which is declining, or in a environment which is static. Okay. Now, when the largest company in that industry is doing that, um, okay, and still keeping its head above water, I mean, the industry itself is not adding capacity. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 macro offshoot of that is that if an industry is not running, is not adding capacity, someday the pricing power will come back, and then the focus will come on the numerator. Numerator, got it. But there's no point in having a new focus on numerator if your denominator is like a balloon. Got it. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, so uh, a lot of people talk about buying into capital efficient businesses. Uh, 
and that's why a lot of these fmcg stocks uh, uh you know are looked at in those lines but what you are saying is a little different you are talking about businesses which could be capital intensive but at the same time they are managing their base the uh, when you talk your roc and uh, even in bad times they are able to manage that or reduce that by you know repaying debt buying back their shares whatever it uh, it takes uh, and uh, in a down cycle you're just about managing your roc but when it turns around on the small capital base when the uh, ebit sort of jumps earnings before interest and tax jumps that's when you see the big expansion of return and that's when you make your money exactly so capital intensive industries are usually linked to inflation and if it's an inflationary trend anyone with an asset side will make disproportionate amount of return on equity or return on capital inflation because it feeds into their prices but not in their sort of uh, the asset base which is already okay. sort of sunk in costs so any new capacity coming in is coming at a reduced much higher so the new capacity is coming at a higher cost that's what you mean yes yes, yes. so they have a natural advantage over that yes and in a consumer business and when you since you address the consumer part of the business uh, or fmcg businesses all the fmcg businesses take their capex through their pnl okay which is basically the big chunk of advertising and marketing spend got it okay. and just to highlight the fact that these were companies that were very capital efficient even from 2000 to 2009 but they were very subpar in terms of return yeah so if you just draw the graph of hindustan lever from the top of the tech boom to the top of the, uh, uh, the 2008 yeah it was flat <laughs> exactly yeah exactly it was flat it gave you no return but it didn't lose its efficiency what happened during that period of time is all the smaller businesses so he was going through a rough period of time and all the smaller businesses who could not invest in their business which goes through the the also of got got uh so consolidated uh, yeah Or at least in my experience, there's no such thing as structurality of a business. Every every business goes through a, a, a cyclical phase, and which is why the emphasis, whether it is an FMCG business or whether it is a a, a, a commodity business, stick with the large ones. Got it. If you if you think they've done extremely well, move to another industry, but move to a large one. Do not that like moving on a relative valuation on a large portfolio is. is a trap got it okay moving on you you spoke about quality balance sheet now this can mean many things to many people right what is a quality balance sheet from your perspective what do you look for in a balance sheet to say you know this is strong or this is weak it's ability to handle cycle multiple cycles it's as simple as that why do how do you manage your uh, uh, your financial discipline mm mm-hmm. Okay, and it all comes down to that. What is financially disciplined? Make sure that you do not capture too much of debt at the at the trough of the cycle or at the peak of the cycle. At the peak, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, at the trough of the cycle, a lot of investors try to say that let's pick up a company with the largest amount of debt. We play the financial leverage. Okay, I've gotten multiple requests for creating products like this, but but remember, financial leverage plays up on the upside of the cycle i i create new capacity and run with that capacity i do not sit with debt at the bottom of the cycle and hoping i come to the top yeah 
if i go down with debt believe me the the management uh, psychology is not to expand or not to grow it's just to pay back debt that's it and that's not how you make large amounts of capital money got it got it so it's got a lot to with uh, whether they can a uh, quality balance sheet is basically what you're saying is something that can pull you through uh, a slowdown or a cyclical slowdown in a uh, uh, in an industry and you come out on the other side and if you come out you know you already won half the battle because a lot of your competitors are gone they're weakened they're overloaded with debt and all that jazz okay uh so we've discussed position sizing we've discussed uh <laughs> cycles in industries how to pick the stocks uh what else will what else according to you goes into this cauldron if you will of trying to create a solid solid portfolio hmm. uh, don't be a slave to the index okay uh-huh okay i, I think a lot of um, and and if tech was 55% of the index in 2000 you know what it got to mm-hmm. if commodities businesses and capex was 45% of the index in 2008 you know where you are and in the same metric if there's a consumer economy and a financial economy which is 60% of the indices or was for 60% uh, no it, it doesn't mean that the last 5 years of great performance looks great on the other side and always challenge challenge challenge, uh, uh, challenge your assumptions mm-hmm. and i think that's where uh, uh, that's where uh, i see way too much of uh, way too much of uh, consensus trying to map yourself around a particular uh, particular industry just because it's got a large weight yeah. and and that's and because uh, people don't want to be wrong like they can always blame the index so because if you go away from the index you are sticking your neck out and saying hey you know what the index is very weighted towards let's say reliance but i'm not going to buy it so i may underperform or outperform but uh, you know this is me but if you underperform a lot of people are going to question you and then you need to have the conviction to be able to pull through that i guess yes i i think that's uh, that's why i say that if you have to create a longer term uh as a longer term track record around or a very successful um you have to you you have to uh, question the norm or you have to challenge the norm and uh, and and don't be i mean i say don't be a slave to the index because we've seen multiple cycles not just in india but uh, but across the world and you started with the 80s and 80s there was a company called india steamship as part of the index so Sindhya Steamships. Yes, uh, along with uh, along with a company called Orkay Silkmills. Orkay, I'm familiar with. Orkay, it was one of those bull market wonders and ultimately disappeared. Yes, so they were all part of the index, and they're not material anymore. Yeah, and we've seen how things, how 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 the evolution of the marketplace takes, or industry takes place, and so does the marketplace. Yeah. So do you do you get the sense that the index is ultimately reflective of the euphoria? <laughs> yes, the index is reflective in terms of the allocations, right? The index is reflective of things that have already done well. Done well, yeah, yeah. And but uh, you know, in the last few years, there's been a lot of study done on this that because 
globally, a lot of money flows into index funds. Mm-hmm. It tends to support uh, uh, this uh, misallocation, if you will. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you could end up being wrong, not wrong, you could end up underperforming the index, index for a very considerable period of time. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? So, so the messaging is it's different for an investor and it's different for a professional manager. Okay. okay. Uh, for an investor standpoint, indices are participating. Okay. Okay. It beats inflation over long term and it will continue to do that for a long term. So I am not against index investing. So it has to be a fairly large part of your allocation. But if you're going to be a money manager and if you're going to have active active uh, uh, active positions, make them active. So there will be phases in your entire career and the entire environment where you'll underperform the benchmarks. And there will be pressures that are there. But whoever said that managing other people's money is going to be easy yeah. or managing <laughs> your own money is going to be easy. Right? Yeah, that's true. And... Um, and it's not about creating volatility. It's going to be by moving out of the uh, by, by moving out of uh, out of the core index composition. It's not like you're creating more volatility. Yes, you're taking you're you're you're, you're trying to create alpha alpha, okay, or you're trying to do better than your businesses. And more importantly, you do believe that there are companies that can do better than those top fifty companies. That's right. Yeah. Right? And if you don't believe that there are companies that are going to do better than the top 50 companies, then obviously go back to the uh, You mentioned about you know uh, managing money, uh, even for an investor, for an individual is not that easy, right? So we'll talk about that because I want to talk to you as an individual as well. But first, let's wrap up the professional sure. side. Uh, here's a fun question. Uh, when you look at industries, and you've been doing it for decades, tell us the most uh, uh, like a niche industry that you came across that really caught your imagination, like something which we would not think in the normal course of the day or research. Well, uh, 2007, I had a gentleman who walked into office because, uh, and he walked in and he said, I just got half an hour, but because I have half an hour, I'm going to make a pitch for you, pitch of this company to you because we are having an IPO. Okay. He came in half an hour, had his feel and went back again. He was in a very narrow vertical of an industry, of, of an industry, of a category which belonged to an industry, which was called Innerware, the jockey. Oh, wow. Page industries. Yeah, there's a half an hour meeting, right? Uh, and uh, that was one. And second is that uh, on day of listing, not too many people know this, but it was down 15%. Oh, wow. I and didn't know that. I'm not aware of that. And I think even fewer people know this that probably in 2002, and the reason why he raised money, uh, he was over leveraged. If I'm not mistaken, he also had a bad credit rating, a terrible credit rating. And okay. And that's how cyclically that business turned around completely post this. Wow. So what I did in in uh, in, in standard chartered or IDFC was was not very different. Okay. Again, uh, 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 Vetri, uh, my, my uh, ex-boss and mentor in uh, 
Kotaka. Yeah, Betri Subramaniam. Yeah. That's right. Uh, okay, he pointed it out to me. He just pick up, pick up a niche. Okay, and wait till it turns into an industry. Uh, there were very few mid-cap funds that were there. Okay, and the two that did well uh, from the late 90s to the mid-2000s uh, were actually having their own cyclical problems of performance and size. And what I did was no rocket science because I was, it, was, it was basically an industry with no competitive intensity. And we went on at least till 2010, 11, we were amongst the largest in the mid-cap space. And, and post that, that category became the largest. It became bigger than large cap. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah. This point you make, uh, you know, look for a niche and wait for it to turn into industry. I'm going to talk about this right now. But about Vetri, if I recollect well, he used to manage a fund called K30. Mm-hmm. And I remember it doing very well. So is that where you... We, where you got your 20, 30 stocks uh, kind of uh, mentoring, yes, if you will. Yes, yeah? I think yeah. with, I, I, so I, I was given the MNC fund when he was around. Okay. Yeah. So we were all in that basket where there was a tech fund which was also running about 10 companies. There was an MNC fund which was running 16, 17 companies and there was Kodak 30 which was running 30. So you had your all your grooming phase, initial phase in uh, tight portfolios and and that mm. works for you. Yeah, optimize the box. Optimize the box. Wonderful. Okay. Now talk to us more about look for niches and see them go through becoming an industry, right? And ride that whole process. We spoke of innerware. Any more stories come to mind from the past where you saw this happen in Krishna industries? Tires. Off your tire. Off your tires. By the way, both Page and Balakrishna equity master recommendations also. I should I should disclose over here. Uh, they bought them like 10, 12 years ago in their portfolios, in their uh, recommendation services. Sorry. Uh, even I get footwear. Even footwear, I think, uh, was hardly, it was all unorganized and very little, uh, very few players were there. Uh, are you seeing any niches now that uh, you find interesting and have a potential to become large in the next 5, 10, 15 years? They come through. I don't say there, there's nothing available out there. I think, uh, I don't know how it will play out, but but the most underinvested in industry in the entire world is agriculture. Yeah. The only uh, the only investment that has gone into agriculture has been subsidy. Subsidy. <laughs> across the world. Across. So there's been a very inefficient allocation to, uh, to productivity in that industry. I don't know how it's going to change, but I but I'm definitely sure that uh, um, over over the next couple of couple of years, uh, there will be a significant investment and return in businesses out there. So uh, I guess in agriculture, if you if let's let's talk about agriculture a little more, that if you had to make a call on agriculture, you would also have to effectively make a call on the politics of the day, because so intertwined, right? And maybe that's why it's in the state it is across the world. For mm-hmm. some reason, agriculture and politics are very deep. I mean, it could be because of food, right? Ultimately, it goes on every table and that's what you know controls inflation costs and that has uh, impact on your future prospects as a politician. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't debate any of that. There are enough negatives not to, want to, not to hold this business. But I just come from a perspective that very few people want to invest in that industry in the first place. Oh, yeah. 
That right. in itself is a reason to look at it, right? If, okay, so so I I only know how contextually to say how it play out because frankly I didn't even expect an NOA company to trade at forty thousand crores of market capitalization from three hundred and fifty crores of market capitalization, right? Mm-hmm. So it pulled up it 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 made that industry mainstream, and then you had uh, a footwear company who also trades at about fifteen twenty thousand crores of market cap, and it came from nothing. And in <laughs> and agriculture, is any like uh, you you include the whole bucket, uh, be it fertilizer, chemicals, etc., etc. The whole the yes, the whole yeah. yeah. There's there's a lot of things that goes into uh, in, in, into that industry. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on from stock portfolios. I think we've discussed that at length, and I think the readers are going to have quite a bit to chew on when they're looking at their portfolios after watching this video. Uh, Asset allocation, and I'm talking about Kenneth as a person when he's looking at asset allocation. What are your thoughts? How do you think about allocating money when you're looking at your overall wealth? So um, I have very little fixed income, equal to nothing. So whatever my fixed income portfolio is probably sitting in real estate, and that also most of it I use. Okay. So you, you, you bought your space, where, uh, your office. Is that your investment in real estate? Yes, yes, yes. So that's essentially what what our fixed income is. But a large part of it is, uh, is or a significant part of it is, uh, is, is our own portfolios uh, and, and equity. Okay. What What are your thoughts on gold? Um, so I haven't stepped out of uh, what I do. Right in terms of asset allocation, and um, and I think if I was to play an inflation hedge, uh, I'd buy uh, companies which have assets on the ground. Okay. Right, uh, commodity business, a real estate business, uh, a manufacturing capacity which is is fairly efficient. Those kind of businesses. So so I think it takes care of itself. I haven't been I haven't been a very big fixed income fan. Or I haven't really sat down any time and looked at my asset allocation ever. You're okay. doing the same thing, right? Over there, you're picking the winners, and the allocation is going to get decided over time. Yeah. So yeah. so yeah, it's not it's not probably the best way to do it, but no. but and I haven't had a reason to complain till now. Yeah. So one of the reasons I talk about asset allocation a lot on this podcast is because, like I was saying in the beginning, I believe that in the long run, and I think there's studies to prove that, a lot of your wealth would depend on how you allocate. True. And and one of the reasons it does that is by controlling that bottom part, mm-hmm. uh, the losses. Because, you know, if someone went long on real estate in 2008, 9, 10, and I talk they have had a 10, 15 year of underperformance. Now, if they did that to the extent of 20%, they're still fine. No worries because the rest of the portfolio did something. But if they went all in, you know, to hit that lottery, to get the jackpot, if you will, uh, that's a terrible, you know, experience. So I think for a lot of people to allocate well, so when we talk about, you know, we we spoke to Mark Faber the other day in our podcast, uh, they all believe in allocation and of course, it changes. Marks is very simple. 25, 25, 25, 25. You know, do your stocks, you do real estate, you do bullion, and you do cash and bonds, right? Uh, uh, I spoke to uh, Alok Jain the other day, the weekend investing, uh, you know, initiative. And I think I think it was him who said one third, one third, one third. Mm-hmm. You know, 
so everyone's got their own thumb rules. Yes. And I think it helps control the biases you may have, uh, uh, which are triggered by, you know, what's happening around you. Uh, but I guess you're a very disciplined guy. You don't need to, uh, you don't need to go through that process. <laughs> no, no, no. It does, it does hurt at points in time, but really uh, uh, the cycles get you used to it. You know? That is right. That's right. Fair point. Fair point. Okay. Uh, one question uh, uh, about here and now. So we're coming off a lockdown. We've come off a lockdown actually quite some time back, but let's say we're coming off a lockdown and your wife comes to you and says, Hey, Kenneth, uh, we were locked up in our homes. Uh, I happened to save a crore of rupees in this last couple of years. Uh, and here it is. What do you want me to do with the one crore? What would you tell her? What would you recommend to her? Spend it. Spend it. Spend it on what? <laughs> Go on a holiday? Yes. Uh, I think uh, two years staying locked in is not probably the best way to spend uh, uh, the last 24 months, the last two years. That's so yeah, I think the whole world needs an outing. <laughs> the whole world needs an outing. That's reflective in the markets, right? Aye. You know, anywhere you go for a holiday these days, the hotels are full, the rates are sky high. It's uh, it's amazing. I think it's, I don't know whether it's going to be permanent. You know, they say, uh, uh, I, I don't know whether it'll be true of this, but they say that if you do something consecutively for what, 30 days, it becomes a habit. <laughs> right? So... <laughs> So for two years, we stayed at home. One and a half years, we stayed at home. So work from home is becoming a habit. Now, I wonder whether when people start traveling, the revenge travel, whether it will become a habit and people will kind of travel more. Now that's an expensive hobby. <laughs> travel. Travel is a very expensive hobby, especially these days, right? It's always been. But yeah, yeah it's always, I don't think it's ever changed. But, but yes, especially so today, uh, travel's not, you need, you need time, uh, and you need the money. And you need the money. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, what are you reading these days? Oh, okay. um, right now I, I I haven't picked up something for a long time. I I can't say I'm, I'm reading anything at this point. You're probably reading like dozens of annual reports as they trickle in for this year. The annual reports are part of the assignment that I'm always happy to take on, uh, and that's that's normal. But, but any any great. particular annual report that you would advise people to read, just for the the learning process, how a you know how a good balance sheet looks. Mm. Actually, uh, the last two years, if you can pick up any of the commodity balance sheets, especially the steel balance sheets, it'll show you as to how uh, it'll, it'll show you how how much cash flows are important to any business cycle. Okay, uh, you said steel. Let me uh, so yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. steel. Okay. I think if you pick up those, um, it'll give you a fabulous transition of how, how a business cycle works. And you don't have to like Blue Quarter for 10 years. You pick up 2010, 11, and you pick up 2020, 22, 21, 22. It'll give you a fabulous convert. You get a whole picture of the entire cycle. Uh, any particular, uh, I'm going deeper because you read annual reports a lot, I assume. Uh, uh, any management that you see really gives a very nice articulation of business, industry, economy that people should read to just get a nice perspective on what's happening? So it goes back again. Um, um, I mean, obviously, the larger companies have a better perspective of what's happening in and around the environment, right? Mm -hmm. so if you pick up the largest FMCG companies' books, uh -huh. okay, you get a 
full overview of what's happening with the with the economy it's just going granularly down to bits and pieces of how that industry is transitioning right um uh, if you uh, and i've been there and and take a look at the, so um the financial statistics of uh, uh, of the world's largest three companies arcelormittal has been fabulous so okay, can you repeat that please arcelormittal arcelormittal okay so okay yeah. the financial transition of that business is fabulous mm-hmm. and um uh, it will also give you an insight okay and his annual report also gives you an insight as to how that business, how the business is transitioning in line with uh how climatic changes are how 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 the world's largest polluting industry is transitioning in line with uh, mm-hmm. uh with the norms which are changing yeah. yes norms which are changing it will also give you a sense of where the next couple of rounds of transition of uh, or next couple of rounds of yeah. capital is going to get invested yeah so uh, you mentioned steel so if i may just share i was reading about steel the other day and they said i do they call it green steel or they don't i'm i'm not sure about whether they call it green steel or not and they spoke about how these companies are starting to try two things right one is uh, how they of course uh, how they burn gas or no gas and use hydrogen etc cetera, etc cetera. the other was the carbon capture thing yes uh are you so since you mentioned uh, since we talk about this uh, how critical is esg uh, when you are looking at uh, stock selection do you think it will have a material impact uh, on performance in the years to come yes you think so i um so i must say that it's not really top of the priority for people sitting in this part of the world including myself and that's because the money that is coming to you is not money that is being invested mm-hmm. uh the investor is not asking for it to be a factor like in the us and all all the pension funds say, you know you have to comply with all those uh, things so we don't invest in so so i can say this much that you don't invest in a company or in a business is deliberately wanting to capitalize on flouting future environmental norms yeah uh, are who have an arbitrage on on environmental norms based on an india competitors we don't do that so we are fairly uh, i mean you might want to call it conscious we might want to call it conscious but we are fairly conscious over that right mm-hmm. so we so we got very few companies that or virtually non existent companies as far as the chemical business is concerned okay we used to hold just one company and they also had a reasonably state of the art plant so 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 when talking about this yes it's going to be a fairly important topic as we go down into the next 3 4 5 days you know uh, the problem is more nearer than we think it is yeah i think aswad damodaran said that uh, he doesn't care for it much because i hope i'm not misquoting him but he said he doesn't care for it because in all his study he did not find uh uh anything uh, you know uh, whether it was really esg making an impact in some sense or the other a lot of the index uh, a lot of these esg indices have tech stocks which anyways would not have had you know uh, uh, like a esg saving a net saving uh, on the flip side and i'm sure you've read this i think 
Terry Smith recently wrote a letter in which he castigated one of his <laughs> uh, holding companies, PayPal, I think. Mm. And he said that, you know, quit focusing on all this stuff and get down to business. Get your business right and be a good corporate citizen. And don't let that precede business. Uh, so I guess it's going to be a tug, of, a tug of war in the next few years. How so you need cash flows to be compliant, right? So yeah. you, can't, <laughs> you can't just focus on compliance and lose sight of your cash or lose sight of being competitive. That's right. It has to go kind of hand in hand now. Yes, it has yeah. to be. You have to invest uh, with existing cash flows. Mm-hmm. And um, I would think before we get fully compliant with new energy norms, uh, which are non polluting, we will pollute more before we, 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 we get completely compliant. It's a, it's a cycle which will be very, uh, com- uh, very uh, material intensive. And to produce all that material, you, I mean, there's no simple solution and it's going to be green. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, uh, Kenneth, my final question to you. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for uh, what someone like you, who's been around for over 30 years, managing money, uh, you know, tracking the markets, managing money, writing about the markets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, what would you have to say to the listeners of this podcast in kind of in summation, if you will, that if they had to sort of uh, become successful money managers for their own money when it comes to the stock markets, uh, in sort of summation, uh, what what is the approach they should take or what is the advice you would give uh, what is it that they should avoid, you know, the pitfalls, if you will? I guess a lot of investors, or I should say there's just one sentence. I'll wrap it up in just one sentence. Just stay the course. Okay. Okay. Just do what you do and just stay the course. And don't experiment too much. Just continue to do what has worked for you because we always have one stock that has worked for us. Go back to that one company, one stock, one fund, one, and figure out what has worked for us and make that a habit. Keep keep repeating the same process again and again and again until it becomes a habit. Uh, because after a particular point in time, you just stop making mistakes. So investing is not about all your successes. It's how many, how much less mistakes you mistakes make. Mistakes you make, yeah. I think that's one of the underlying themes of what we've discussed today, actually. Okay, yeah. So if you stop making mistakes, your strike rates will be extremely high. But to get to that point, you have to stay the course. Very interesting. On that, on that note, uh, which is a, a very, very thought-provoking note, and if I may add, it reminds us of, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, it reminds us of rule number one of Mr. Buffett, uh, don't lose money and don't forget rule number one. Uh, on that uh, very simple but yet very powerful note, you know, I would like to thank you for taking the hour out and talking to us at the Investor Hour. And uh, thank you very much for all the wisdom you've shared today on how to build a portfolio and how to go about looking at cycles and picking uh, stocks. Thank you, Rahul. It was a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. And all the best. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure 
to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.